Yes. Welcome to episode 23 of Songs You Should Know. Yes. Discussing the music of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland album. I'm Jimbo, and as always, I'm joined by the mixture, and for this episode, we have a special treat, a special guest whom I will introduce in just a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're coming to you from the Songs You Should Know World Headquarters, located in a secret bunker in northern Minnesota, and from our recently relocated satellite office in Branson, Missouri. For this episode, we're also being joined by renowned guitarist Mr. G, sometimes called Dr. G or the G-Man, who is holed up G in money. his... <laughs> G-Money. That's a good one. Who is holed up in his ice fishing shack in the middle of Minnesota. And I'm not kidding. The name of his location is literally the Ojibwe word for in the middle. We can't tell you exactly where the world headquarters is located in northern Minnesota since after two years of construction. Oh my goodness, what a trial this has been. We have moved to a new location due to security concerns regarding the production production, the protection of our priceless vault of classic music. But we can tell you that you can see Lake Superior from here. Have you Yes, we're looking at uh, Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland album. Jimi Hendrix and the Experience, actually. And Mr. G, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, nope. talk about yourself and why oh. why this oh, Electric oh. Ladyland album oh. was suggested. Well, I mean, there's got to be a reason that you're here. So. There's got to be got to be a reason. Uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, it's something from obviously from from the past, 1968, and I know we get into all the all the ins and outs and the technicals of everything. But for me, it's just something that blew me away when I was a kid, and a kid being in in college. And like I've told you many times, uh, Jimbo, uh, I used to listen to it, and I recommend this strongly. Listen to this album in the dark, turned up loud, nobody else in the room. Because that's what I used to do in my college dorm room. And I'd listen to the sound go back and forth between the speakers. I'd, I'd hear these noises and things I'd never heard before. And the textures and the richness. And it, it's just something else. And, and still is. If did, you haven't didn't spent you put, the time to didn't, listen to the whole thing. <laughs> didn't you put your speakers in the trash cans or something? Uh, well, you know, I didn't have any cabinets for them. And I had this, this cheap-ass... Uh, Ward's airline uh, record player that had speakers facing left and right, not towards the front, left huh. and right. 
And so the sound would go away from where you were. I took them out of there. I wired them up, put them in, in garbage cans for cabinets. And uh, I was much more pleased with that sound. But uh, however you listen to this, this record, if you can get the actual records and you have a turntable, do it that way. <laughs> um, not one-offs uh, on uh, Spotify or anything like that. Right. Because it's an album. It's a double album. Yes. It is Listen a... to Mr. G, kids. Vinyl. <laughs> I can smell the vinyl burning from here. <laughs> Someone's house is burning down. Yeah. That's right. All right, yes. <laughs> and it and, and it is a two LP collection, which is kind of cool. And um it may come up later, but I know that it was probably probably the the first time and maybe the only time that uh Jimi Hendrix hit number one with an album so yeah all right have you ever Yes, indeed. So we're talking late 1968. Well, near the near the, uh, October 1968. October. So, tell me something about it, Mick. <laughs> well, the title, the title track is to the uh, to the third album by Jimi Hendrix and Experience, Electric Ladyland. It leads off uh, the album after a short instrumental titled "And the Gods Made Love." And uh, so it was recorded in May or June in 1968 at the record plant in New York City. And our good old buddy Eddie Kramer, the great Eddie Kramer, was engineering and mixing it. And, and Gary Kelgren also engineered, engineered it as well. How come it wasn't recorded at Electric Lady Studios? Hmm. hmm. I think some of it was. No, was. I'll I'll answer that question no? later. Oh, okay. <laughs> like a lawyer, you never ask a question yeah. you don't know the answer to. Yeah. Right, no, the answer. Damn, what am I paying you for? All right. How many musicians were on this this particular cut, Greg? <laughs> How many musicians were on it? Yeah. Um, I do. I am I supposed to know that? Uh, no. Well, maybe depends on it. Well. I know there. I know who some of them were. I know some of them weren't. I know who stormed out after the session. <laughs> Noel Redding, uh, and uh, of course Chaz, the uh, uh, who was producing the thing, and uh, the, the former uh, bass player for the Animals, who was managing Jimmy at the time and trying to produce this record, and he bugged out, and Jimmy took over the whole thing. So as far as who was oh I know some people who were on there you know Dave Mason um, it was uh, also Brian uh, Brian Jones uh, added a little bit when he wasn't drunk uh, <laughs> I, I've forgotten the others now that I'm well, on the spot. I know for for the the particular for just the Electric Ladyland song it was Jimmy and Mitch Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And pretty much uh, Jimmy did the bass and production and mixing and pretty kind of used the uh, used the recording studio as his instrument. But um, supposedly the lyrics 
are sort of based on his, or inspired by his infamous practices in relation to promiscuity with women. That would be Jimmy. Yes. That would be Jimmy. <laughs> he labeled them <laughs> electric ladies. And uh, Devin Wilson was a pretty well-known groupie in the 1960s who was rumored to be amongst the inspiration for the lyrics. And um, so Matthew Greenwald was a, a, a writer, and uh, he wrote for... It's been, produ- it's been reproduced on the website, All Music, but uh, he proposed that the track was influenced by soul musician Curtis Mayfield with a distinctly bluesy psychedelic edge. And I've got one I'm going to throw in here for you because uh, this will probably um, be recognizable to a lot of you as a Curtis Mayfield song that a lot of people think influenced this particular track. So there, there is a theory out there that uh, Curtis Mayfield was an influence on the style of this recording in that we've got uh, Jimmy singing up in his falsetto and we've got some call and answer sort of things going on. His, his song, of course, is a little bit faster, but um, it's been mentioned more than once that uh, they thought that Curtis Mayfield was, was a big <clears throat> influence there. So, so Greg, is this one of your top ten Jimmy songs? Well, you know, I you guys told me to pick out three from the album, and I thought, okay, some of them run really long. If you're going to, I didn't know if you're going to play the whole thing, so I thought I'll come up with some uh, at least we, one that's a little short. We don't want to get we don't want to yeah, get yeah. any DMCA takedown notices. Well, there so. there. There is that, isn't there? Is that, isn't there? There yeah. we uh, But uh, the reason, it, because it, it, it kicks off the album after God's Made Love, which is where the sound goes crazy back and forth and back and forth and just kind of flows right into it and kicks in. And it's it's not a long song. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it kicks off the double album. And uh, so I thought it would be appropriate. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Go ahead, cool. Mick. Yeah, it's only it's only like two minutes and twelve seconds long. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the songs on that album are pretty short. But I mean, it was it still dates back to those days where, you know, uh, man, if you went over you went over three minutes, you know, you couldn't get played on the radio. That kind of stuff. Right. But, but I don't think a lot of a lot of these songs were intended for radio play. <laughs> um, no. They're woven into the texture of the album itself, and one we're going to be looking at later definitely was because it was released, and uh, of course Watchtower. But um, the others, I'm not so sure had any ambitions uh, for top forty radio. Right. All right. Well, they did do an instrumental version, um, 
And later on, Jimi Hendrix had a, a band called the Band of Gypsies. So this is this is with the experience. But uh, Buddy Miles was the drummer with Band of Gypsies, and they did an instrumental version of this, and then they dropped it from the from the album before it was actually released. Why? I don't know. Maybe time. Maybe just <laughs> who knows? I don't know. Anyway. Got anything else? Otherwise, we're going to take a short break. Break away. <laughs> break away. <laughs> have you ever been? Have you ever been to electric lady land? The magic carpet waits for you. Oh, why not? All right. <laughs> Crosstown traffic. I love listening to this song with headphones on. Yeah. Because not only is it, going on. not only is it crosstown traffic, but it's crosstown mixing. I mean, everything's <laughs> sure. going back and forth in your head. <laughs> yeah. That's very mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Billboard described the single as a pulsating swinger that will make a powerful chart dent. Mm. <laughs> and Cashbox described it as an explosive session with massive instrumental impact, impact and a heavy vocal. But um, I, I, I always thought of this as sort of a prime uh, instance of Jimi Hendrix using the recording studio as another instrument. Where, yeah, there's all that stuff waving back and forth and there's, you know, all this stuff hitting you from all sides. And uh, I th- always thought it was a cool tune. <laughs> so. Oh, you're definitely right. Right on both counts. Uh, recording studio, um, all the all the techniques that he was playing with on on these cuts, and when we get to Watchtower, even even more. But they were working with the uh, tape tracks and uh, experimenting through the whole thing with the sounds and, like you say, the back and forth uh, stereo mix, which you really don't hear a, a lot of. Um, even then, but, uh, yeah, that, that song hits hard and finishes up quick and it goes into the next song. Well, just like every song on the album just rolls into the next one. Yeah. You know where this was recorded? I know you must come on, baby. <laughs> you, you talking to the mixture or, uh, no, I'm, I'm talking, talking to you. you. Come on, buddy. Give it Oh, I think that was done in uh, Olympic Studios in uh, London, England. Yes, it was. This this album was recorded across uh, both sides of the pond. Yeah. So, and unlike a lot of the other tracks in the album, this one actually did have the full line of the of the experience. So we did have Hendrix, Noel Redding, and Mitch Mitchell, you know, together. 
Uh, no, uh, wasn't mad at, at, at this point. <laughs> or, or came back from the, came back from the bar across the street, and I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, well, the album took months to make, so there was a lot of opportunity to be kicked at each other, leave, come back. Yeah. Going across the street. <laughs> All right. All right, Mick. Reception. Uh, so, How'd this song do? So it reached number 52 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it reached number 37 on the U.K. Singles singles chart. Yes, it so. did. So that's not that's back in not the day. Bad. Back in the days where you could actually, you know, gauge things on record play and stuff, which now right. now everything's downloads and. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and it was still early on, and 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 he was, you know, so different at that time. But Greg. You tell me my thoughts. I'm not really sure if, if Jimmy made music and really cared about having a hit, but that's me. Well, I could I, I can't get into his mind. Uh, I, I know that uh, the record company was interested in that uh, aspect. Uh, we gave you money. I think, I think on this album, it, it, this was a pure Jimmy album. You know, the, the first two. Uh, I, I think the production was was uh, not dictated, but was guided by music industry people. This one, they kind of gave up, and uh, he took over and just went crazy on it. And it's a pure Jimmy thing. So whether he wanted hits to come out of it, I, I know they did with with Watchtower, but uh, he wanted he wanted to say something and to show people something and to make people feel something. There you go. I see some similarities with uh, early Prince too, where absolutely, I was just going to say that. Yep. You know, I'm going to control the recording environment and produce it because mm -hmm. nobody, nobody can hear what's going on in my head. Quite. Yep. Right. So. Yep. yep. Brian Wilson. So people yep. like that. Brian Wilson would be another one. Have to, yep. Have to get it out of their head into the recording somehow. Right. And if you have to suffer in the process, that's too bad. We're just going to keep doing it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, All right. right. Mick, lyrically, okay, it's so not complicated. Girl, but... <laughs> right, yeah. Let's stay on script. No! Uh, so the song is about a girl who is hard to get rid of. Getting through to her that she's not wanted is like getting through cross-town traffic. And the lyrics are similar to many blues songs in that they are filled with sexual references and clever metaphors. And this next one is, is actually my favorite line from the song. I, when I was a kid, I, I loved the song, and I still do. I'm not the only uh, I'm not the only soul who's accused of hit and run. Tire tracks all across your back. I can see you've had your fun. Which is <laughs> what a <laughs> what a terribly um, hmm, not PC comment as far as you know. It's it's horribly uh, misogynistic, but it is very blues based. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it can be interpreted even in a more uh, graphic way if you want. <laughs> when I was about 12 years old, that's how I interpreted Greg. So I've said it's Jimmy bragging about, uh, about his abilities and, uh, oh, yeah. You know, so, yeah. 90 miles an hour girl is a speed I drive. 
You tell me it's all right. You don't mind a little pain. You just say you just want me to take you for a ride. Oh my goodness. <laughs> anyway, there it is. <laughs> Anyhow, something like that. <laughs> well, I do know that um, Jimmy was having a hard time getting the sound that he wanted doubled on some of the guitar stuff on here. And mm. so uh, he took a comb out of his pocket and uh, he asked somebody to get him some cellophane and he made his own little kazoo. And so the you can hear a lot yeah. of a lot of the guitar <laughs> doubled by just a uh, sort of a homemade kazoo thing playing through his comb. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, um, and the backing vocals. So we've got, yeah, Noel Redding is on there, but we also have Dave Mason. And I always kind of yeah. thought it was kind of cool that, uh, so Dave Mason was in traffic. Yeah. And, and here he is doing the, uh, he is doing the high part on the word traffic. <laughs> in, in traffic. And he does the whole thing. <laughs> It should have been Steve Winwood, but he wasn't available. I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. you know what? Um, I saw he sat some, in for some of it. I role. saw someplace else that Steve Winwood had been yeah. involved in some of this, yeah. uh, some of this album. But yeah, um, probably <laughs> not. That. Probably not one of the songs we're talking about. But yeah, <laughs> no. Anyhow, all right. Ready to take another quick break? We can do. Okay, we'll go across town. Oh. Hang on a second. I got one more thing. Because I found Ooh. another I found another copy of this song. Ooh. Oh. And um all right, Mick, I'm gonna put you on the on the spot here. So right. there was a band that opened for Guns N' Roses in ninety two ish. Um so they were open for Guns N' Roses. It was the Use Your Illusion tour. And they also covered Crosstown Traffic. I'm going to play the song first, and then you can tell me who it is. Okay. Got a guess? I do have a guess. I don't know if it's right. Blind Melon. <laughs> that's a horrible guess. That's a horrible guess. Cult of Personality. Dang it. See, that's that's what it sounded like. Uh, Living Color. Living Color, yes. <laughs> I like my guess better. I'm going to change that. <laughs> Well, now we have to re-record that whole part of the the thing. Anyway, all right, we're out for a break.
must be some kind of way all right, Greg, you're a monster. Yep. You're a monster at playing this song. <laughs> with with well, one track. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always love playing this song live with you. Yeah. Well, um, it was a bunch. So what did, uh, well, you obviously know, what did Dylan think of uh, Hendrix covering this? Well, uh, from all accounts, and this has been, going on since first first he heard it i think uh he i think he likes it better than his own because he plays it ever since he's heard it he's been playing it in a hendrix fashion um i don't know i don't have any quotes from uh from him there's i'll have some if i could find them but uh basically uh that's really the way the song should be played. And that's the way he's been, he's been doing it for the last whatever many years when he does. It. Yeah, no, I, I think that Dylan thought that, uh, you know, it overwhelmed him and he's, he was interviewed a number of times over the years and, uh, he thought that he could find things inside a song and, and develop them. He found things that other people wouldn't think of finding there, and he probably improved upon it by the spaces he was using. And yeah. I think the quote from Dylan was, I took license with the song from his version, actually, and continued continued to do it to this day. So, mm-hmm. yep. And, uh, um, another one here. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say another quote here. Uh, uh, Strange how when I sing it, this is from Dylan, strange when when I sing it, I always feel it's a tribute to him in some kind of way. Yeah. There you go. And at the, so Mick, at the time when, when Jimmy was learning this song, oh, yeah. nobody else knew, really knew the song. Nobody else really knew or had heard it yet. No, so he was the only one that, that knew the arrangement, so... Um, he he was they they'd be sitting around and and you know playing it so so they could hear him talking and he would just you know shout out the chord changes and and uh, you know with without the answer or anything because nobody else knew where it was really going because <laughs> it was all in his head. <laughs> so. Right. Um. Yeah, so the whole idea of playing either not plugged in or playing very low and talking the arrangement through with people. Um, I just, I always remember from uh, the very early days of a band like Def Leppard, which is, you know, metal, loud, you know, stuff going on. I I just remember reading a Rolling Stone interview long, long time ago around the time of their first album about how they would sit around in a hotel room and basically either play so quiet, either play unplugged or play so quiet that you could talk over everything. And that's how they put down their arrangements. And by the time they were going out and plugging into amplifiers and playing everything really loud, they all know this, knew the songs and the arrangements so well that it didn't matter if they necessarily could hear each other on stage as long as they knew where, where the song was. And right. uh, I think Hendrix kind of was doing kind of the same thing. But um, anyway. 
Yeah, so uh, <laughs> Dave Mason is on 12-string guitar. Mitch Mitchell's there. Noel Redding. Briefly. Briefly. I'm going across the street. So after a row with Hendrix early on, Redding stormed off to the Red Lion pub across the street. Um, we were having a few problems with the band already, and I said I didn't like the tune. That's Noel Redding saying that on BBC. Um, I prefer Dylan's version. Or, as he, as he put it another time, I told Hendrix to F off. So Mason, <laughs> Mason eventually took over bass duties for the London session, although Hendrix swapped in his own bass line later. So, anyhow. Yeah. Well, and they lost, they lost their producer. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. Jimmy became producer. And uh, over the course of, what, three months, and I think it's the summer of 68, he just worked on improving it, making it sound like he heard it in his head with his 16-track machines and and recording things, erasing them, recording things, don't like that. A lot of tracks ended up in the ether uh, until he got something that he liked. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and evidently Noel didn't like, but that's okay, because who remembers him? <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Mixter, how how did this song do on the charts? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, re- it reached number 20 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart, which was uh, Hendra's highest-ranking uh, American single in its only top 40 hit to date. Uh, Track Records released the single October 18th and it reached number five in the British charts, becoming the first UK stereo only single to do so. Yeah, the first UK stereo only release that that, huh. that hit the top or near the top of the charts. So I used to buy the mono version uh, because it was a dollar cheaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that it was two ninety nine instead of three ninety nine. <laughs> oh man, I don't remember. Well, ha- yeah. I don't remember having that option. But uh... yeah, no, no. Well, it kind of went away after, right after this yeah. thing. Now you can listen to songs on Spotify with about three quarters of the uh, quality <laughs> <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, I, I ha- had to pull this quote out because I really like it a lot. Uh, Dave Ran- Van Ronk, who pro- comps- crops up all the time in a lot of Dylan lore, um, yeah. he was a supporter of Dylan and and uh, mentor. But I love this criticism he had of uh, of Dylan's writing of this song. He said, that whole artistic mystique is one of the great traps of this business because down that road lies unintelligibility. Dylan has a lot to answer for here because after a while he discovered that he could get away with anything. So he could do something like All Along the Watchtower, which is simply a mistake from the title on down. A watchtower is not a road or a wall and you can't go along it. And (laughs) I'm like... You're thinking too hard about all of this, Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, I've heard that. 
I've heard that quote before. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, logically, it makes sense, but you know, but a logical rip. rock and roll wise, it doesn't. But uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. It is. Oh, it was a, a giant of 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 folk song songs saying Greenwich Village, Cafe Wow, all that stuff uh, in the earlier 60s when uh, Dylan showed up there. But I, I think there's probably a little jealousy mixed in with that comment. Oh, sure. <laughs> there must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief there's too much confusion. I had to throw a little bit of Dylan's in, in there just yeah. so that you could hear the, the contrast in, in styles yeah. there. But uh, um, So yes, Dylan obviously liked the song and continues to this day to take inspiration from it when he plays. But um, I love that <laughs> I was reading through all the different versions of of the the different takes that were done in the studio of this song and uh take 14 this was the quote i got is the first with a drunk brian jones fumbling around on the piano and then in the 23 seconds they make it before hendrix cuts it off you can already hear this is a bad addition (laughs) he was completely out of his brain kramer kramer recalled Poor Brian, he was a good mate of Jimmy's, and we all loved him. Jimmy could never say no to his mates, and Brian was so sweet. He came in and said, oh, let me play, and he got on the piano, and we could just hear clang, 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 clang. It was all bloody horrible and out of time, and Jimmy said, I don't think so. So Brian was gone after two takes. (laughs) He practically fell on the floor in the control room. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Only contribution little rattly sounds. Uh, yes. 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 They got the flack. <laughs> they they can here. You you play some percussion. Here, hit this thing. Right. And if you know the the vibra slap sound, the thing that. Uh, yes. Yeah. So they they let him hit that a few times, and that was <laughs> that was pretty much the extent. Yeah. On the <laughs> intro. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, we're going to take one more break and we're going to come back with some trivia. Woo! We're back for some trivia. Ten questions about Jimi Hendrix, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna put <laughs> Greg. You have not heard any of these questions before, have you? I, I have not even heard there were going to be questions. 
<laughs> Excellent. Good answer, Greg. Don't say anything. <laughs> All don't right. Have to answer that. The first question. I'm gonna. The Greg gets first shot at the questions, and if you you can't answer it, then it's gonna go to Mick. And either one of you can ask for multiple choices if you want. So. Uh huh. All right. So, Greg, in 1966, what was the name of Jimmy's band that was gigging around Greenwich Village up until his discovery? Oh, it was something like Jimmy James and the somethings. Um, hmm. He went by Jimmy James, I think, when Noel, uh, when uh, Chas found him at Cafe Wa uh, and discovered him, brought him over to England. So here's some more trivia I'm telling you already, since I don't really know the answer to the one you're asking. <laughs> but you're so close. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what what rhymes with James? That James. Would be, that would be hot. <laughs> that would be, uh, oh, James and Jim James and the Flames. The blue flames, yes. I'm gonna the give blue that, I'm gonna give that one to you. Yeah, I heard that before, but not recently. <laughs> we'll accept it. I'm going to pass you on to the next round, Greg. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Who was credited with introducing Jimmy to Chaz Chandler after seeing him perform at Café Wah? Mm. I can give you the the multiples for this. Hmm. Credited. Credited with introducing Jimmy to Chaz Chandler. Yeah, I'm trying to think who else might have been there. Michael Jeffrey. Don't know. Oh, that's interesting. How about some uh, multiple choices here? Unless unless Mick wants to take a shot here. No. All right. Your choices are Linda Keith, Patty Smith, Thane Pridgian, or Eric Burden. Ooh. Oh, Eric Burden would make sense, but uh, I haven't ever heard that before. Well, <laughs> that's not an answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Eric Burton. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was Linda Keith. Patty Smith. It was Linda Ooh. Keith. She was she was the one-time girlfriend of Keith Richards. And she is oh. the one who was there that introduced Jimmy to Chaz Chandler. Well, that's just a- because of her last name was the only reason she was a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three. When auditions were held for Jimmy's new band in England, what was the big reason he chose Noel Redding for the bass guitar position? (laughs) Here's your choices. Yes. He was a seasoned bass player on the London scene. Chaz Chandler had promised to find a gig for Noel. Noel was part owner of a recording studio. Or Jimmy Doug Knowles' wild hairdo. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to throw a wild guess and think it, that the Chas was putting the band together, so I think he probably brought Noel in. Nick, <laughs> I'll agree. 
No, Jimmy Doug Knoll's wild hairdo. <laughs> Come on, that's the he only thought reason. he looked. He thought he looked the part. <laughs> Even though Noel was a guitar player and had never played bass before. Yeah, that that that, that I had heard. So I knew that one answer. <laughs> one answer. <laughs> All right. Ooh, See that <laughs> we're doing well. <laughs> well, yeah. The points don't matter. So the yeah. rules are made up, and the points don't matter. So. Right. We all get a participation trophy, G. Yes, of course. As the, the, <laughs> As the story goes, Mitch Mitchell won the drummer's slot in a coin flip. What drummer was the runner-up? Who could have been the drummer? For the uh, ex- Pete Be- <laughs> <laughs> Um... <laughs> a drummer at that time. I'm going to give oh. you the choices here. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Carmine, is it a Piche or a Apis? Didn't we have to go through this once oh, before, uh, Mick? Yeah, we did. And I don't remember. I th- a Piche. Uh, yeah, Carmine, a, a Piche. Ainsley yep. Dunbar, Keith Ooh. Moon, or John Bonham? Oh, boy. So who lost out on the coin flip? I'll, I'll see Keith Moon. Ooh. Just well, because he's cool. Right. He's cool, but but the who were still going. <laughs> Zeppelin was going. That's true. Yeah. That's true. My choice. Yeah. What? 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 Do you, Which? Carmine, Ainsley, Keith, or John? Let's go with Ainsley Dunbar. It is. Ainsley Dunbar, who later went on to become (laughs) quite a well-known drummer. Who did who did Dunbar play for? Journey. Oh man, he may have played for somebody before then, but he was Ainsley was in Journey for. Let's see here: Uh, John Mayall, Frank Zappa, Jeff Beck, Journey, Jefferson Starship, Nils Lofgren, Eric Burden. There's a whole long list. (laughs) He's couldn't keep it. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Journey, but yes, he's played with a lot of people. So drummers do that. They do. Yeah, (laughs) always showing up. (laughs) Yeah. What do you call a drummer in a three-piece suit? Greg. <laughs> okay. Dead? What was it? <laughs> no. A drummer in a three-piece suit. The R- defendant. The defendant. <laughs> All right. What was the first single released by the newly formed Jimi Hendrix Experience in the UK? Uh, it was uh, Hey Joe, I think. Yes, it was. Very good. <laughs> what is the title of the Jimi Hendrix Experience's full-length debut LP? Okay. What is this? <laughs> oh, come on, man. <laughs> uh, that's what's not are you experienced. It is. It is that. Oh, that was the first one. <laughs> that was that their was... <laughs> That was their first full-length you know, oh, full oh. debut LP. I don't know if they had anything before that, but anyway, you know. So. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> After conquering the London music scene, it was time to hit the States. What was the experience's first gig in the United States? So they had to go to England to get noticed, and then they came back to the U.S., and they played a pretty major gig in the U.S. Was it Monterey? It was Monterey. Yeah. And yeah. Mick, what did uh, Jimmy do at Monterey? I'm going to guess he did the Star Spangled Banner. No. Damn it. He did so what, time. what did he do? <laughs> oh. What did he play? What did he do? Oh, what did he do? What did he do? Oh. Uh, let's say he lit the guitar on fire. Yes, he did. Do you know why? But that wasn't... Do you know why he did that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Greg, why did he? Uh, it, it, let's see. Was it Jeffrey? I think... Uh, He'd already done it once before in England. Yeah, um, I think he had, but I mean, that yeah. it's, it's the one that is on film yeah. that he's known for. But uh, Yep, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was uh, the producer that worked with Chaz. Um, was that Michael Jeffrey? I don't know. I think he, he's the one that said, you should do that. Well, I think the story was he had to follow the who. <laughs> oh, here, here it says... <laughs> It's, it was Chandler's, somebody that I looked up, Chandler's idea, it was his idea for Hendrix to set the guitar on fire. Well, I'm, so, I'm not going to dis- yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to not now, dispute you. <laughs> I swear to that. <laughs> Final Here answer. Go. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on New Year's Eve 1969, Jimmy played a gig without the original experience members that was recorded and released as the live Band of Gypsies album. Where did this legendary performance take place? Because it does say Band of Gypsies at... Oh. Fillmore East. It is the Fillmore East. Go with your gut, man. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's correct. That's where uh, I think uh, one of the the few sort of uh, seminal copies of uh, Machine Gun was recorded, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So after the Band of Gypsies gig, Jimmy reconnected with Mitch Mitchell on drums, but Noel Redding was not asked to return. Instead, Jimmy's old army buddy and band of gypsies bassist was kept on. What was his name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Argent. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I actually used to have a, a solo album by this dude. Oh. Oh, he's somebody then. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he was. I mean... Yeah. I mean, bass players, let's face it. Never <laughs> <laughs> tell. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you at this point. Yeah. It's Billy Cox. Anyway. Oh, okay. So, on what day was Jimi Hendrix pronounced dead? Actually, if you give me the year, I'll give you the day. But... Oh, it must have been 69 or 70. Uh. Um, 
I know we, uh, at the time, we all thought there was a grand conspiracy. We, we didn't even have the internet to spread it, but it spread anyway that, that uh, Morrison and uh, Hendricks and Joplin and all of them were somehow, somehow led to their demise by some you know, Nixon X esque kind of uh, uh, conspiracy. So, but. <laughs> I think where I was then, I think it must have been, must have been 70. It is 1970, uh, yes. Yeah, you got what, it. Uh, uh, September 18th. Now, uh, earlier uh, on, I had said, uh, I had asked you about uh, Lady Electric Lady Studios. So, yeah. uh, Electric Lady Studios didn't open until um, August of 1970. Mm. And Hendrix had recorded there for a I don't know, a couple of weeks before it opened and then up until his death. But Hendrix only worked, only got to record at Electric Lady Studios for about 10 weeks before he died. And it was one of the first recording studios that was fully owned by a musician and not by a record company or private company. And uh, it went on to become, wow, a really famous um, recording studio for... Uh, um, Stevie Wonder worked there. I know Elton John did. I know a bunch of other people did. Kiss recorded a bunch of demos there. Um, you know, so it it became a pretty pretty big deal, but mostly after Jimmy had passed. So sure, yeah. But that's what I know. So hey, G. Go. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. This was fun. Well, it's been my my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Well, like now, you, now you have to start thinking of the next band you want to talk about, the next oh. album or whatever. You probably want it to be not from the last part of the last century. I don't know. We'll <laughs> you can you can propose anything. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, if you want to know more, you can always go to songsyoushouldknow.com and uh, listen to all the misinformation that Mick and I and now Mr. G can give you. And uh, (laughs) otherwise, you can go to places like Wikipedia. I'm not sure you can trust that either. Or some of these AI things, you can't trust those either. You know, and then there's song facts, but you really do have the entire internet at your disposal. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And if there's any drummers out there, if there's any drummers out there that got offended by the drummer joke, you can contact (laughs) Mr. G. (laughs) It's your fault. (laughs) All right. Later, folks. (laughs) We're out. Teleport machine Because he was too sick to get the driver's license